0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about a simple and obvious statement. I am not my lawn. Sometimes grass is just grass.
1: picture of you that no one seen, but he often...
0: That introductory melody was Victoria Williams and the song Weeds from her album Swing the Statue. I'll get back to her at the Different Drummer segment. There's a couple of other things I need to do, though, first by way of introduction. Uh, one of them is that you can listen to Inappropriate Conversations on Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio, one of many shows that's available there, and including some of the ones that I might promote today. The other thing, though, before I get into the topic of this notion of I'm not my lawn, Uh, maybe exterior decorations is not important. I'm going to get there by way of speaking a little bit about idolatry, and I'm going to start with a quotation of Scripture, a short one this time. But first, there's a topic that's going on in current events that I'm going to ignore. This is not new. From an inappropriate conversations perspective, I often ignore current events. In Steubenville, Ohio, a recent case uh, going all the way back to last year involving you know, teenagers gang raping or assaulting sexually another teenager, has come you know, to the end of one stage of its trial phase, and that has led to a lot of talk, a lot of conversation, and some of it good. Now, obviously, there's, there's nothing truly, genuinely good that can come from a case as disturbing as this, but the dialogue itself isn't necessarily bad. And some of the hideous mistakes that the media has made from CNN to Fox News and others have raised some interesting and I think important dialogue about the media itself. And one aspect of that that I think I want to touch on is whether or not I've done enough to speak on the sexuality side of the mission statement of this show. Inappropriate Conversations is about the idea that we've not been served well by keeping strictly separated these ideas of politics, sex, religion, other aspects of popular culture. And from time to time, I will have episodes that deal pretty directly with sexual material, sometimes sexual history, sometimes current sexual thought and ideas. And on the one hand, I wonder, yeah, maybe I haven't done enough there. On the other hand, I would understand if there might be people who would put forth the challenge that would say the frequency of explicit language episodes is perhaps too high. I disagree. And one of the reasons I disagree is that a question that was raised actually just this week by an author named Christian Pyatt, I saw the article on patheos.com, raises five questions about this entire Steubenville, Ohio rape case. I want to focus on just the fifth one. And again, toss it out as an idea, just a one-off, and then get into the episode itself about idolatry. His fifth question, things that have come to his mind after he's mulled over the situation in Steubenville, Ohio, in some detail, is this, isn't it time we talk about sex yet? Talk about an inappropriate conversations topic starter, a conversation starter. There you go. Here are his words. We are both a sexually repressed and sexually obsessed culture. On the one hand, we cling to puritanical values that suggest good people don't talk about sex and sexuality, certainly not in detail, in places like schools, churches, or around the dining room table. On the other, we consume more pornography than any generation in the history of the world before us. We speak in generalities— Lean on vague moral lessons from Sunday school and hope that the high school gym teacher's six-week sex education class will suffice to equip our kids to deal with sexuality through the most confusing, emotionally charged, hormonally volatile, and socially confusing time of their lives. And then we're surprised when they don't think oral sex is a big deal, or they wonder if they can get pregnant if a boy ejaculates in a hot tub they're in. Until we're willing to answer every question our kids have about sex, and even to anticipate others that they've yet to formulate, we're equally responsible when such tragedies take place. This is a good question raised by Pyatt on patheos.com. It may be an inappropriate question, but the by far the more inappropriate thing would be refusing to answer it or refusing to acknowledge the validity of the question itself being raised. Why would, we, why would we do that? Why would we ignore a valid question, perhaps even an important question that's facing us? And I would suggest that one of the reasons we might do it is to protect our image. We're obsessed with the idea of who we are supposed to be. We are, as a culture, very interested in putting on the right front, the right show. And I'm going to describe that for the balance of this program as idolatry. And I'm going to speak against it in a no-holds-barred way. But before I do speak on my own behalf, or even critically of my own past, on this idea of the front that we put up, or the temptation to put up a front and to conceal who we really are, what we really think, what we've really done, where we stand on things, don't just take my word for it. I'm going to go to the Bible, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, and share what Jesus has to say about this idea, where Jesus essentially if you were to break into some hip hop, might just say there ain't no future and you'll fronten. Matthew 23, verses 25 to 28. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of your cup and plate while the inside is full of what you have gotten by violence and selfishness. Blind Pharisee, clean what is inside the cup first, then the outside will be clean too. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look fine on the outside, but are full of bones and decaying corpses on the inside. In the same way, on the outside you appear good to everybody, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and sins. If I've done that passage justice, I've communicated the exclamation points that Matthew has recorded here and ascribed in quotation, To Jesus of Nazareth. My perspective is fitting that a show that was originally conceived to be timed roughly for the start of spring and to actually speak about the hypocrisy of pride and arrogance with regard to possessions and appearances should start with the words of Jesus Christ and to pointing a finger at the church. Yes, I don't think I've done this in quite some time, and never as directly as I'm about to do it now. But there is a problem inside the church today, including churches that I have attended, with idolatry. Oh, I could call it hypocrisy. I could use light and airy terms like putting on airs or even putting on a front. But I think it's about time we probably face-to-face acknowledge what we're really dealing with here is idolatry. For example, if in a conversation— with, say, a pastor or a member of the congregation, the talk turned to whether or not we were being you know, sufficiently reverent toward the altar that stands at the front of the church, whether it was inappropriate that we allow kids to take communion or children to step too close to that, or whether it's wrong for the piano to be too close to the altar or for other musical instruments to be played around there, that it should be kept as a sacred space. Well, what are we talking about a sacred space? As Christians, and in particular as Protestant Christians, my church believes that Jesus once and for all, with his crucifixion, with his resurrection, tore the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies within the temple of ancient Israel from the common folk who are trying to practice their religious devotion. In other words, this notion of an altar somehow being sacred, of there being something inherently wholly infused into marble and wood, is completely wrong. Paul, in the book of Acts, on more than one occasion, specifically states that God will not be worshipped in things built by human hands, that the craftsmanship and the artisanship of a human is in no way sufficient to create something that's an object of worship. I challenge this individual in a conversation, as a matter of fact, to say that the same attitude that seems to be prevailing about you know, how we should be you know, behaving, for want of a better word, inside the sanctuary, you can see it. You can detect it, especially if you're a visitor and you're sensitive to how you're being perceived when people respond to the way people dress that in some churches, if you walked into that church wearing blue jeans, tennis shoes, and a t shirt, I mean you're you're probably not going to get asked to leave. But you might notice you're not going to get necessarily asked to come back, or if you do get asked to come back, you'll be asked to come back in the hopes that maybe you've seen enough and learned enough from your first visit to do better next time. That in some ways your ability to worship is completely connected with what you wear. This is in essence an act of idolatry. It places what Paul would describe in the letter to the Romans, a stumbling block in front of people, puts something in their way, something extra they have to do. It's in every way a sinful Jesus plus theology. And I'm beginning to come to the conclusion in my own mind and in my own experience of religious practice that that plus is not just this notion that we've discussed before on Inappropriate Conversations, uh, Jesus plus the Ten Commandments, or Jesus plus a handful of verses in Leviticus. In this case, if it's Jesus plus what you wear, or Jesus plus how you sing, or what music you play, or what music you listen to, or what movies you don't go to see, or what books you don't read, if it's Jesus plus that, then it's Jesus plus idolatry. Because the thing about idolatry is, it's an external thing. It's not something inside. It's that whitewashed tomb. I'm going to dress up. I'm going to look right. I'm going to act right. I'm going to behave in the right way because I'm interested in being perceived in the right way. Because image is everything. Osgan one of the former different drummers, has mentioned in his book, Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, When Evangelicals Don't Think and What to Do About It a quote, because his book is divided up into two sections. One looks at the historic problem, going back to before the United States was formed, before the Articles of Confederacy, at influences that have led to and fostered Christian anti-intellectualism in this country. It's not just in full bloom now, it's running rampant. It's a weed that has taken over in some ways, whatever theological credibility the American Christian mind might have. But in the second half of his book, he looks at what he would consider modern influences that are contributing to the problem of evangelical Christians who do not think. Now, remember, Ganesh is speaking as an evangelical Christian, a think tank representative, trying to influence Christians to do better. So he's not coming at this from an antagonistic position. He's coming at it from inside the camp, trying to get people to correct their course. And one of the things he cites is this notion of style over substance, this idea of fashion. And the quote that I shared when I talked about Guinness, I'll share again here from memory, so I might get it a little wrong, but it was basically, anymore, when you put on something to wear and you walk down the street, or when you pick up a book to read, or when you you know play some music on your phone with the speaker on so others can hear, you're not saying like you used to back in the day. I like this. Anymore, what people are saying by the clothes they wear or the music they listen to is, I'm like this. This is what I'm putting on. This is my costume. This is what I want to claim for myself. And from a name it and claim it perspective, it isn't just Jesus Christ. It isn't just the gospel. It seems like there's more to it. And this sort of leads me to the topic that I really want to discuss, which is this whole notion of home decor, and especially external home decor, and the title for the show, I Am Not My Lawn. And that's the problem. Now, first off, just to speak in a somewhat self-deprecating tone, I, as a member of a community, as someone who lives on a street with other people and in similar-sized homes, I can do better than I do today. I am not the guy in my street who obsesses over how much mulch, what kind of mulch, which flowers, how well the trees are pruned, the uh, edging, and how well the yard is maintained. I'm not that guy. And perhaps that's a problem. Uh, If I were my neighbor and my neighbor was that guy, I certainly would be perceived as the problem because for some people, their value, their worth, who they are is tied up into what their driveway and their front yard looks like. And if the guy next to you doesn't water as often, doesn't fertilize as aggressively, but doesn't buy enough mulch, doesn't use enough of it, isn't the right kind of mulch, then, you know, suddenly you're doing all this work to make everyone see how wonderful things can be and how great things are and how much control you have over your image and over your possessions. And it doesn't serve you very well if the guy next to you or the guy across the street from you is kind of a jerk, doesn't really care, and clearly is a bit of a slacker. Now, this goes all the way back to the first home that we owned, where I was absolutely and unequivocally a slacker. We moved into the home. I didn't have a lot of time off. I didn't have a lot of practical experience and know how. And, you know, we, we ended up with a weed problem before we could get to the process of putting in the lawn because it was a new house being built in a new cul de sac of the neighborhood and the city that we lived in. And by the time we got around to doing the maintenance of, Putting, putting in a yard, putting in a fence, all that other sort of stuff. Yeah, you know, We ended up having to work much harder than we should have to begin with. But even after the lawn was in place and I'd caught up on some of these things that as a very first-time homeowner I was doing, I realized that it was never going to be good enough for a couple of the people in the neighborhood around me. Now, again, full disclosure, hands raised in the air, I'm not the guy. I wasn't getting the job done. I failed by even my own relatively nominal standards. But even on my very best day, even with my most passionate, as much as I can pour into caring about the yard and the bushes and all that, I'm never going to get it done. My best day was nowhere near as good as these guys' worst day. One of them I actually joked about. We had a good relationship and our wives had a good relationship. But at some point, you could begin to see that there was something kind of going wrong inside his relationship with his wife and it later proved to be true. I mean sorry to say, I I'd hoped that I was not right, but my perception was that he had suddenly had a much more external focus, working a lot more hours at work, spending much more time on hobbies, and especially a lot more time on the yard. And when it struck me that it was at its most peculiar was that even in that right time of year, either you know late in the summer or midway through the spring When the weather is just perfect for grass to grow, and you've done some fertilizing, to me, twice a week is the most you ought to be mowing. If you're mowing more often than twice a week, then you probably ought to be a little bit more aggressive on your setting, taking the grass down a little bit further than you are. But this guy was three times a week, every week, no matter what. I saw him out there mowing his lawn the second of the three times that given week in a driving rainstorm. With thunderstorm warnings, I am dead serious that if he had planned to mow, to mow his lawn on a particular night and it was hailing or there was a tornado warning, it was a roll of the dice, flip the coin, 50-50 shot, he might be out there mowing the lawn. And what I said was that there had almost – it was so peculiar to me that there almost had to be something sexual about it because you've got a guy who, who is doing something that he has a great deal of passion about three times a week, every week, without exception, and if anything interrupts that pattern – if one of those times is taken away from positively unmistakably surly as surly as you might be if there was some sort of quidus interruptus happening in the situation it was a fetishistic thing in my opinion now compare that to me my attitude was once a week is fine i sunburn easily i'm fairly fair skinned it's just grass to me well that wasn't the case for this neighbor wasn't the case for the other neighbor either. He had established a carefully worked out system of exactly how many times to go one diagonal versus the other diagonal versus a perpendicular square. And he wasn't mowing his lawn anywhere near as often, but he had a pattern. And if anything interrupted that pattern, it was as if he was deathly concerned that all of the grass would dry up as if a curse had been a pax had been put on his house or something like that. I can be sarcastic by nature, sometimes it doesn 't necessarily show on inappropriate conversations, but i 'm quite sure sometimes it has and I can remember telling him that he was spending a lot more time on the diagonals than he was on the perpendicular, and he gave me a, a big litany of reasons why that was really important, and it was somehow important that the diagonals were were dominating and, and so forth and I said you know i 've checked the longitude and the latitude, uh, lying of course, kidding really. I've checked the longitude and latitude, and based on the position of your house, you know, to the rotation of the planet, what you think is a diagonal is actually a perpendicular. What you think is a perpendicular is actually a diagonal. I'm pretty sure from God's perspective, you're doing it wrong. Well, I think it probably goes without saying from the way I'm telling the story, he didn't get the joke. Because his point was he was going to do an intervention in that on the side of my yard that didn't have much room between my property and my neighbor on the other side, I wasn't doing diagonals. Often enough, it was like three straight runs up one way, back down the other. It was a thin part of the property that I owned. And, you know, I would just go up one, come back the other, more often than not. Occasionally, I'd get creative, do a diagonal or something. But in his mind, I was doing it all wrong. And and if it wasn't going to destroy my lawn, at least – my lawn wasn't going to be as successful as his was going to be, and that was going to cast some sort of aspersion on him. That somebody who was driving down this road and heading toward this bowl part of the cul-de-sac that we were in in this city was going to notice that you know maybe his lawn was every bit as exquisite as he wanted it to be, but somehow the shine was going to be taken off his property by the dullness of mine. Again, I mentioned that I can be sarcastic after that conversation, and my. Quite accurate perception that it didn't go well. The very next time I mowed my yard, we had a tree that was directly in the center of the front yard plot of that property. I put my mower right next to the center part of that tree, and I mowed my lawn in a spiral circular cut. And I got in the habit of doing that again every two or three times. I wasn't unpersuaded by the logic that maintaining a particular pattern was not necessarily going to be good for the growth of the lawn, especially if you were occasionally mulching it, not just bagging everything. But I didn't see why a circle would be the end of the world as we know it. But it probably was a relationship killer. Uh, Just that one act alone, which I perceived as humorous and entertaining, might have no doubt that this particular neighbor perceived it as an aggressive, petulant, perhaps even on some level violent act. And, of course, the number one form of violence isn't confrontation. It isn't conflict. It's complete indifference. It's like the quote that I've heard attached to William Faulkner, but I'm sure probably goes back well before that, is this idea that the worst thing is not to have loved and to have lost, but to to not to have loved at all. I've had a conflict before at work along these lines at a previous place that I worked where there was a competition of sorts that I wasn't anticipating. It wasn't a natural competition; it wasn't intentional, but you know, a lot of us had been asked to brainstorm and come up with a way of tracking you know, just inbound receipts and orders. And I came up with a way that seemed you know really good and very comprehensive, and lots of people liked it. But others felt it was a little too complex. Another member of our team came up with another method, similar in many ways, but different in the fact that it was much more straightforward. And The day was approaching when we were going to present these two or three ideas and the director in the area was going to make a choice. And before we got to that day, thinking that I was being a good team player, a good team member, very cooperative and helpful, interested not only in what was best for me, but also what was best for everybody, including newer members of the team who I could tell were going to struggle to maintain a document with the complexity that I'd created. I simply backed off, withdrew my copy, threw my support behind this other individual and said, let's go with her answer. And I wasn't, I don't know what I was expecting to get a whole lot of gratitude. It it was to me a very pragmatic decision that I was making. What I wasn't expecting was to get that much anger, almost vitriol, because by surrendering before the battle, I had deprived her of the victory. And it was, you know, sort of that mentality of saying, hey, you know, if I just give into this, like I don't care, which in this case, I didn't care. Isn't that nice? Isn't that being deferential in the best kind of way? But in this case, deference was interpreted as confrontation. And to be indifferent to something that other people are passionate about, that other people take that seriously, can often be perceived as the worst kind of confrontation, as maybe even an act of violence. And so as a homeowner, you know, I'll be the first to confess, I'm, I'm the guy who, you know, I look at it and I say, it's grass. I want it to be healthy. Um, I want it to survive. I don't mind if it grows. I'm willing to fertilize. Not that interested in over fertilizing because to me, the health of the people in my community, drinking water, the impact of groundwater runoff on other aspects of the environment, pretty important. Having a very green or perhaps the greenest lawn, having a fastest growing lawn that maybe has to be mowed three times a week just to keep up with it is nowhere near as important. those other priorities. But I do engage in chemical fertilization. I mow a couple of times a week when things are at their height. Um, There are weeks where I don't mow at all. And again, there's the thing. If you hit the the hottest part of the summer in some parts of the United States, and your grass really isn't growing. And the only thing that does grow, if you have any, are the weeds. And my wife and I have more than a few conversations during the summer about whether it's the appropriate time to just give in and mow quote, unquote, the lawn when the only thing you're really cutting down to size is the weeds because due to the heat, things are fairly dormant. Now, we don't often see complete browning, that sort of that dead-looking hibernation. But even though the, the yard stays more or less green, it doesn't grow very fast. Now, of course, that distinguishes me from some of my neighbors as well because some of my neighbors at the height of the hottest part of the season spend a lot of time and a lot of money and what I would describe as a lot of resources watering making sure that the grass does continue to grow so that it all can be mowed and so that at all times you're maintaining this this look of uniformity i've had a few co-workers that i really admire i mean this is not a criticism it's just a difference in style that work to do the uh the haircut thing in such a way that it maintains as much as possible the illusion that their hair has never grown this is the way i interpret it again perhaps it's uncharitable My approach has always been to cut the hair short, short as I can tolerate it, and to let it grow to the point where it's pretty much as long as I can tolerate. And if that puts me in a six to eight week pattern, or maybe even longer, then I've saved myself maybe a little money, certainly the time, and maybe even at times the aggravation of dealing with the haircut issue. But I have friends who go every two or three weeks, who have it scheduled out in advance, and they they never cut it too short and they never let it grow too long because there's this very narrow band that they want to maintain. Now maybe that's easier for them. Maybe they enjoy the process of going to get their hair cut or their hair done. That's just not me. And it's not me both in the sense that that's not really the to me the the best way for me to use my time, but also in the sense that I'm not trying to maintain any illusions. I'm not trying to maintain the illusion that my hair is always a certain length at all times or that there's a band within that length. Now, this probably could rule me out in the minds of some people from that dress for success idea, but I've always been the kind of employee where I look at myself from the perspective of, if the most important thing I'm bringing to the party on any given week is what my hairstyle looks like, then I'm not getting the job done the way I want to get it done. And hey, there may be times where that's a true statement. There may be times when situations or Uh, workloads or priorities interfere, and I I can't get things done the way I want. I'm not as effective as I'd like to be. But heaven help me the day that it comes down to the fact that the most important thing I'm bringing to the party is the length of my hair. I am not my hair. I am not my shoes. And I am certainly not my lawn. Masters of None. Log on to MastersofNoneShow.com.
2: Our DJ name's real. 95% of them are completely (laughs) fake. There's someone named Rusty Fender, traffic person. Ew, I'm Rusty Fender giving you the traffic. I really hope that that guy gets in a bus accident. (laughs) This would be ironic death. Now your name is Bloody Fender, (laughs) and you're causing the traffic. (laughs) Okay, then you got people who just steal famous names, like George McFly, Jack Daniels, Maverick, and Ernest Borgnon. <laughs> what? All right, I made the last one up. I made the last one up. <laughs> it was just like an 18-year-old intern. Hi, everyone. I'm Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> what? Anything with nice. You need those, like, those short-sounding names with that one, too. Jack Nice. Jack Nice. Benjamin Nice. It really doesn't work. NPR, try to get edgy. by trying to get some cool radio names going on. I'm Bartholomew Nice. <laughs> Bartholomew. Nice to be here on NPR. NPR. <laughs> <laughs> I will cite Wild Bill Shakespeare is an actual <laughs> radio name. That was actually a before and after puzzle on Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> <laughs> masters
0: of None. Email mastersofnone at com On Twitter, Masters of None. And on Facebook, Masters of None. Years ago, I saw a very humorous story that was told from a uh, Christian perspective or theistic perspective, with God looking down and having a conversation about lawns. I've seen it before ascribed to a conversation between God and St. Peter. I found one online here recently on, ironically, a website called richsoil.com, essentially a uh, website that's committed to the idea of growing a healthy and impressive lawn. This one reprints it by permission of el ojo del lago news guadalajara mexico but again i think i've seen this going back so far that i'm not sure who the author would be that you could attribute it to i'm just going to share it the way it's presented on this one website under the heading god on lawns and the subtitle imagine the conversation the creator might have had with saint francis on the subject of lawns god says hey saint francis you know all about gardens and nature What in the world is going on down there in the Midwest? What happened to the dandelions, violets, thistle, and stuff I started eons ago? I had the perfect no-maintenance garden plan. Those plants grow in any type of soil, withstand drought, and multiply with abandon. The nectar from the long-lasting blossoms attract butterflies, honeybees, and flocks of songbirds. I expected to see a vast garden of colors by now, but all I see are these green rectangles. It's the tribes that settled there, Lord, the Suburbanites. They started calling your flowers weeds and went to great lengths to kill them and replace them with grass. Grass? But it's so boring. It's not colorful. It doesn't attract butterflies, birds, and bees, only grubs and sodworms. It's temperamental with temperature. Do these Suburbanites really want all that grass growing there? Apparently so, Lord. They go to great pains to grow it and to keep it green. They begin each spring by fertilizing the grass and poisoning any other plant that crops up on the lawn. The spring rain and the warm weather probably make the grass grow really fast. That must make the suburbanites happy. Apparently not, Lord. As soon as it grows a tiny little bit, they cut it, sometimes twice a week. They cut it? Do they then bale it like hay? Not exactly, Lord. Most of them rake it up and put them in bags they bag it why is it a cash crop do they sell it no sir just the opposite they pay to throw it away now l- let me get this straight they fertilize grass so when it does grow they can cut it off and throw it away yes sir these suburbanites must be relieved in the summer when we cut back on the rain and turn up the heat that surely slows the growth and saves them a lot of work (laughs) you're not going to believe this lord when the grass stops growing so fast they drag out hoses and pay more money to water it so they can continue to mow it and pay to get rid of it what nonsense at least they kept some of the trees that was a sheer stroke of genius if i do say so myself The trees grow leaves in the spring to provide beauty and shade in the summer. In the autumn, they fall to the ground and form a natural blanket to keep the moisture on the soil and protect the trees and bushes. Plus, as they rot, the leaves form a compost and enhance the soil. It's the natural circle of life. Yeah, Lord, you'd better sit down. The suburbanites have drawn a new circle. Uh, As the leaves fall, they rake them into great big piles and pay to have them hauled away. No. What do they protect the shrubs and the tree roots in the winter? How do they keep the soil moist and loose? Well, after throwing away the leaves, they go out and buy something they call mulch, and they haul it home and spread it all over the place where the leaves had been. And where do they get this mulch? Oh, they cut down the trees and grind them up to make the mulch. Enough. I don't want to think about this anymore. Sister Catherine, you're in charge of the arts. What movie do you have scheduled for us tonight? Well, dumb and dumber lord. It's a real stupid movie about never mind, never mind. I think I've just heard the whole story from St. Francis. There's something almost unbelievably natural Genuine is the word that comes to mind about the music of Victoria Williams. In our introduction today, I played just a little bit of the song Weeds, both because of the irony of having a song called Weeds at the beginning of an inappropriate conversation about lawns, but also the surrealist nature of that song, where she's talking about hiding in the weeds and what can be found there, and the difference in perspective that I think ties really nicely with the funny story that I just shared from an unknown author about God's perspective on weeds and wildflowers versus our own perspective on you know, what, what makes a good look. And it's that, that idea of perspective again. What is a diagonal and what is a perpendicular? Well, it all depends on what angle you're looking at the yard from. And if you believe that, that your yard has some sort of natural inherent component relative to the position of your home, it's an interesting question because the house didn't exist until you put it there. That can't be the, the anchor for your property, even though on some level it truly is. But if there's something truly meaningful about the idea of cutting at a diagonal, the question is diagonal to what? So Victoria Williams, that one tie-in, perhaps enough to bring her in. But really what I wanted to talk about from Victoria Williams was this notion of putting on airs and what happens when we drop the idea of idolatry. What happens when we're open and honest about our roots? And how does that change things? Because Victoria Williams not only made a couple of what I would describe as unassuming albums with a mixture of gospel elements and folk elements, uh, experimental, almost alternative music in the mix, but also as an artist, a songwriter more than anything else, inspired enough of her fellow musicians, perhaps without her even being necessarily that aware of it, that when tragedy fell upon her, she encountered what I'm only guessing was a surprising amount of support. And the result of that support is one of the single most important movements in rock music in my lifetime. I want to speak a little bit about Victoria Williams' music itself. I want to end a slightly religious bent still tied in with her music. But first, I think it's probably important for anyone who hasn't heard of Sweet Relief to explain what that is. You have a simple singer songwriter with an alterno folk kind of style who's recorded albums um, made a bit of an indie buzz and has caught the ear of her fellow musicians when she realizes that she's coming down with multiple sclerosis and as an independent artist and therefore independently employed she doesn't have the wherewithal to cover the bills that are going to be facing her from a medical perspective without insurance now if you look back at the conversations we've had as a country in the last year or so on issues and questions related to health insurance, you can see why this is suddenly a very big deal and completely relevant and totally on target. Because when you're speaking about the unemployed, we often have this conversation in this country, an inappropriate one in the worst sense of the word, where we're talking about people who aren't in some ways paid either by a small businessman, or a large corporation and therefore have the health insurance plan associated with that as some sort of freeloaders. And we get confused and we jumble up this idea of unemployed and underemployed and independently employed. But you have to be the rare exception when it comes to independent employment. If you're going to be in a position to pay for all of your own health insurance bills while dealing with something as significant as cancer or leukemia or multiple sclerosis. So what happened was Sweet Relief sprang into existence. Her fellow musicians, people who'd been inspired by her lyrics, probably people who had already been singing her songs, stepped up and decided to record an album and to use the proceeds of that album as a benefit to help pay initially for her medical needs, her medical bills. But it became something much, much bigger than that. Here's the mission statement from www.sweetrelief. Dot org under the heading what we do since 1994 sweet relief musicians fund has provided assistance to all types of career musicians who are struggling to make ends meet while facing illness disability or age-related problems grant recipients include recording artists club and session musicians composers and songwriters from across the country every musical genre is represented including pop jazz classical rock country, blues, reggae, hip-hop, and all styles in between. Sweet Relief has served the music community by helping musicians with medical and living expenses, including insurance premiums, prescriptions, medical treatments, and operative procedures, housing costs, food costs, utilities, and other basic necessities. Even if a grant recipient has private or publicly funded health care, they often require additional assistance. I mean, we know this. If you've seen an Aflac commercial, you know that sometimes the even a small business can't provide the kind of comprehensive health care that could lead an employee of, of long standing and good standing to manage to cover the gap between what insurance will cover and what your medical needs may be, especially if your medical condition is particularly disabling. In this respect, Sweet Relief was a home run. But I also would recommend Sweet Relief for the musicianship itself. In some cases, well, I'm going to say that Victoria Williams' voice is an acquired taste. I think her musical style as a songwriter, virtually unassailable. But she also, from her own musicianship, often has a found sound kind of quality. Her music in some ways is plinky-plunky, not in the electronica way, but in a folk-style way. And you can understand that not being necessarily everybody's tea. If you prefer your country music to be traditional and twangy, she's going to let you down on a consistent basis. And if what you really feel about rock and roll is that it's metal or nothing, well, she doesn't have a lot of heavy metal in her. But the interesting thing about the Sweet Relief Project was what happened when other people stepped up to participate and record her music song like Summer of Drugs, recorded by Soul Asylum, coming not long after they'd become a major hit with their Somebody to Shove song and a few other singles from that same period. Pearl Jam was literally on top of the world at the time that they recorded Crazy Mary, which had not yet been released by Victoria Williams on her own album and featured her in background vocal. If you've never heard Crazy Mary, the Pearl Jam version or the Victoria Williams version, one of the better pieces of songwriting that, frankly, I've ever heard. She paints a story of a small town, small town life, and the eccentrics that live there, telling a tale of somebody who, you know, perhaps uncharitably could be described as the village idiot, but from the perspective of a character who saw more there. And, you know, one of the lines, just painting the picture of what this town was all about, I'll just quote a a little brief lyric from it, uh, where she describes a country store, with a little sign tacked to the side that said, no L-O-I-T-E-R-I-N-G allowed. Underneath that sign always congregated quite a crowd. This is the kind of turn of phrase that was common throughout her work. From my uh, experience just shopping used record stores and valuing the bargains that I see, I've described myself in previous episodes from a music store perspective as a placostomist. I don't like to see something genuinely valuable being cast aside by others. And on more than one occasion, I bought additional copies of this sweet relief in the dollar bin or $2 bin and shared it with others. People who didn't buy it when it came out at full price perhaps weren't even aware of it. But it's my way of saying, hey, if you've really never heard Buffalo Tom before, their version of her song Merry-Go-Round is quite good. Uh, Lucinda Williams does a very nice and very Victoria Williams version of the song Main Road. And I've got a soft spot for Maria McKee. I always have and I always will. And she basically gets what you might call the title track of this particular collection. There are moments where I could go either way. The recording that Michael Penn does of the song Weeds, no better or worse than Victoria's original, when in doubt I tend to, to land on the original Lou Reed brings a really good quality to the song Tarbelly and Featherfoot, but there's a different quality that's brought to it by Victoria and her original, so that's another one I go either way on. The Waterboys do a marvelous job trying to find the right tone for Why Look at That Moon, but again, Victoria hits the same tone virtually the same way, and uh, hers has more of an interesting sort of a found sound approach. If I were going to recommend one track, though, I'm not going to recommend Holy Spirit from the Sweet Relief Collection recorded by Michelle Schacht. It's not that Schacht does a bad job. She has an interesting take on the song. But from the album Swing the Statue, I would recommend, really strongly recommend, Victoria Williams' original version of a song that's essentially an interpretation of Kumbaya. Swing the Statue also has another gospel oriented song called uh, Lift Him Up near the end of the album. And one of the more emotional, heartfelt songs she ever wrote, which you may have heard performed by other people, I Can't Cry Hard Enough, the chorus is, and now that you've gone, I can't cry hard enough. No, I can't cry hard enough for you to hear me now. Um, that quality. But no, the one I really want to cite is Holy Spirit, which is essentially her singing a song that is a, you know connected directly with Kumbaya. And I know some people in the church who don't like Kumbaya, either they feel it's to uh, folky, to campfire song. Again, that whole notion of, is what we're singing respectful enough? And is that notion of respectability really just a form of idolatry that we frankly should shun as a sinful feeling welling up within us? Or is it that it's just too simple? I don't know. But the storytelling that Williams brings to it starts off in sort of a church camp setting in Louisiana, jumps forward to New York City, and kind of puts this notion of singing kumbaya in both of those perspectives. What if it truly is a church camp? Or what if it's a street musician? And then she ends it by saying, I have felt it on a mountaintop and underneath the stars. I have felt it in a church yard and, and even near some bars. It will make you laugh, make you cry, make your heart go ping. Yeah, the spirit, the Holy Spirit will make you shout and want to sing the Spirit, Holy Spirit, was flowing. The Spirit was flowing. Victoria Williams is the kind of singer who could put this song on an album with either an indifference to its commercial success or a sense that this well-rounded here-is-who-I-am-take-it-or-leave-it idea might lead to commercial success. I'm not sure that I can speak to you know, one degree or another, how much commercial success she had and how it measured up to her personal expectations. But there had to have been a moment when the Sweet Relief Project was happening and sort of happening around her, not really from her or through her, but around her when she had to sort of been taken aback at the number of people and the kind of people who wanted to sing her songs, wanted to do it in a way that would generate profitability and wanted to give the proceeds to her to help cover her medical needs. That fund is serving other musicians today. It was the start of something that, in my estimation, is still alive, still around, and still serving its purpose. But if Williams doesn't have the courage to come forward and share, publicly enough anyway— that she was dealing with multiple sclerosis and that she was going to have a problem carrying on as a musician and that she was perhaps going to have a problem paying her bills and surviving the economic impact of being underemployed as most independent musicians probably are, then we wouldn't have the benefit. Any other musician who has been served by this fund would not have the benefit today. To me, the reason for that, the number one reason is not just the quality of Williams as a writer and the very natural personality that she brings forward and the way that connects with people. The number one reason is that given the opportunity to put on airs, getting the opportunity to put on a brave face and pretend that she didn't need help. She didn't need the support of anyone else. She was honest and allowed people to see her as she really was and take it or leave it. And I'm personally very thankful that so many of her fellow musicians and so many others in the music business decided to take what she had to offer. So, the overriding theme to this inappropriate conversation is that idolatry is wrong, that it separates us. From the love of God. It stops the Holy Spirit from flowing as Victoria Williams described it in her song. But perhaps it's also saying, hey, if you see any recording, whether the tribute to Victoria Williams or the tribute to Vic Chestnut or any other future recording with the slogan Sweet Relief over it, and you notice that it is actually serving the purpose of providing additional ongoing support for Sweet Relief Musicians Fund, by all means, pick up a copy. And if you haven't given the music of Victoria Williams a second listen, because it was perhaps just a little bit too folky or a little bit too simple, I would encourage you to, if nothing else, give it one more try and do so with the lyrics attached. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. It does appear that there won't be any interruption to my email communication at that particular e-address. I also can be found at Twitter at IC underscore Greg, or on Facebook. There is a separate page for Inappropriate Conversations there as a cause. And as always, the website at www.inappropriateconversations.org has show notes with comments enabled. Thanks for listening.
3: geekdom if so the anomaly podcast may be right for you in clinical studies anomalies interviews convention reports commentary on geek culture games sci-fi and fantasy television literature and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness the anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of anomaly are unconsciously joining in the gamma quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your Anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over-the-counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. dot Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by Jewelbeat dot com.